we are in something called Apologetics Month. Every August, we bring in speakers from around the country, really, um, experts on various topics to address the issue of apologetics. Briefly, apologetics is a discipline where you give a defense of Christianity, specifically the truth claim. So it's giving a defense of what Christians say and believe and teach. Now, this week, I'm incredibly happy to have uh, a friend named Chris Nye with us here today. He's an author, a pastor. His works have been published in various outlets like the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, etc. Uh, he is, has a master's degree from Western Seminary, where I attended as well, and is working on doctoral work at Duke University. Uh, the thing that I will say, and probably most important um, about Chris, is that he loves the church, he loves teaching the church and equipping the church, and he has a unique way of wanting to, in my mind it's a unique way that you have, uh, uh, a way of getting people to not just sort of, okay, this is, this is the truth claim of Christianity, so know it in your head, but also your, your affections, your emotions, your feelings, so a connection between the mind and the heart drawing near to God. So that's what we're going to do today. On that note, Mr. Nye. Hey, South Valley, how you doing? Good, awesome, awesome. It is such an honor to be here. First time at your amazing church, but have known Isaac for many years. And, uh, you know, I love, uh, Isaac said, uh, you know, speakers from all across the country. Y'all, I hail from Mountain View, California. Just, you know, <laughs> took a plane here. No, it was, <laughs> it was a, a lovely drive down here to Gilroy. And I just am so happy to be here. Again, my name's Chris, and um, I just already love your church. I love worshiping with you. I can tell that you love Jesus, that um, you're on mission uh, in his kingdom, and it's just a sweet sense of um, God's presence here. And so I'm, I'm just happy to be here. I'm glad that you're here. And I, I know because, um, because of your pastor, I know that you also as a church love the Bible. And if you're new to church or you're visiting here, um, we're gonna talk about scripture today. We're gonna talk about the Bible. The Bible is so central to Christian faith. I know many of you love it, I love it. I've been teaching it for 15 years and I've noticed one thing about teaching the Bible for 15 years, and maybe you have noticed this too, that there are culturally unlikable aspects of Christianity, and one of them is the Bible. The other one is the church, right? Most people, when they're kind of struggling with faith today, they wonder, can I be a part of like an institutionalized thing like the church? The other thing they really wrestle with, though, is the book, the book that is connected to the faith. I, like I said, been teaching the Bible, and have you know, for 15 years, I fell in love with the Bible about 20 years ago um, in surprising ways, the way the Lord was working in my life in my early teen years um, was just, it was deeply impactful. I fell in love with the Bible, but I recognize that it's a mistrust people have with the faith. And so in this month of apologetics, it's my honor to kind of talk with you and help encourage you whether you're very new or kind of even on the outside, I hope to build your trust in the scriptures. But also, if you've been following Jesus for decades, I pray that this time together is a time where we can learn a little bit more and be encouraged in the trust of scripture. Well, like I said, as I've t taught the Bible in various settings, here's how I've seen the, the, the Bible's mistrust. I was a youth pastor for many years, and I noticed that in young, young people, they started to question the stories of the scriptures, and they started to question, how did the Bible get arranged? You know, is this really God's word? 
From youth pastor, I went to the inner city of San Francisco in the Tenderloin District, and even people in impoverished communities were struggling with that question. Can I trust this book? Uh, There I also ran this internship where young people from all over the world would come and we'd teach them theology in the morning and they'd go do inner city ministry through the day. And all those young people, man, one of their main questions was like, Chris, I want to make sure that the Bible is what it is really says it is you know i want to have trust in the bible and now pastoring younger churches uh i see the same thing my point is i don't think there's a um i think there's kind of a, a an accessibility to the criticism many people have it many people struggle with it and if you're struggling with the bible today or you know somebody who struggles with the bible and you're trying to communicate the trust of the scriptures to them i want you to know this is a common thing and it's not going anywhere I don't think that suspicion around the church and around scripture is going to magically disappear. And I think it's on us as believers to kind of be well equipped. And so it's so fun to know you guys are, um, you know, engaging in this, in this, this month. I've noticed though a shift. In about 15 years, I've noticed the mistrust of the Bible has taken a slightly different articulation, but it's extremely important. This is how it looked kind of in an older paradigm. In an older paradigm, people said, look, if I could trust the Bible to be factually accurate and historically reliable, I will trust it. And maybe some of you here today, that was your journey. You struggled with its factual accuracy and its historical reliability, and you read something like The Case for Christ or you know, some work of Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel, um, important books, massively important books. But I think in this new generation, there's been a shift in trust of the Bible where it's gotten a little bit more complicated, where people are saying, look, if I find the Bible to be factually accurate and historically reliable, I will not trust it. Now you might be thinking, that sounds crazy. That sounds great. Well, you know, welcome to the world. (laughs) The world is a crazy place. But think about what this means for a young person today. If we see the Bible for what it is, it's going to have implications for someone's life that in today's culture is difficult for them to stomach. This is what I mean. It has historical implications, meaning this means that maybe preposterous acts of violence occurred that were probably ordained by God. And so if I take the Bible, I'm gonna have to take that history, which is great. You have Paul Copan coming next week. He's gonna do a wonderful job of some of the difficulties parts of scripture, but his books have blown my mind. But that's why some people are hesitant to trust the Bible today as they go, look, if that actually happened in Exodus or that actually happened in the book of Joshua, then I'm going to have to take that history on and I'm going to struggle with that. So it's not as simple as saying the events in the Old Testament happened, therefore believe Christianity. It's becoming increasingly complex. Secondly, there are scientific implications, are there not? Some of us have wrestled through this in our life. This was something I certainly had to wrestle through, which is that, okay, if the Bible's claims are true, if it's factually accurate and historically reliable, this means miracles occurred, which that's gonna be hard for some people today to really believe that the sea was split in two, that water was was made into wine, that the loaves and fishes were multiplied, right? And aren't there ethical implications? If the Bible is true and I'm gonna receive this as my uh, authority in my life, it means that my ethics and politics might have to change. 
specifically today around the Bible's historic sexual ethic, right? This would mean many implications for people. I'm trying to set up the problem for those of us that are Christians, and if you're on the outside, I wanna acknowledge this might be some of your hesitations with scripture. But for those of you that are believers, know that it's becoming more complicated around the Bible than simply proving it to be historically accurate. In fact, I think in the church, there's been a slight move um, to trying to separate the Bible from Christianity. I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. The word of God is so central to our existence as Christians. I saw this viral, um, this viral post uh, go up. I'm not gonna put the author up. I don't wanna put him on blast, but this is just a, what's swimming in the church a little bit, okay? Being biblical, quote unquote, is worthless. This person is a Christian writer. If we aren't being Christ-like, to be Christ-like is to love your neighbor as yourself. To be biblical is to quote verses that align with your personal agendas. Too many Christians are being biblical without being Christ-like. And I read that and I thought, well, how do you know how to love your neighbor? And how do you know what is Christ-like? See, on the surface, it may sound nice, but it's separating Christian sanctification from the word of God, Christian development and discipleship from the word of God. And so subtle ways like this, it's, it's kind of sowing seeds of mistrust to go, don't be biblical, right? And by the way, why do I have to choose between being biblical and being Christ-like? Don't I become Christ-like by knowing my Bible? <laughs> In fact, like I said, how do you know how to love your neighbor as yourself? Where did you get that? That has to come from scripture, right? That has to come from a trustworthiness of God's word. And so how do we develop strong trust in scripture? How do we understand that the Bible is what it says it is? I wanna explain to you and kind of share with you today, uh, to me the best apologetic for scripture moving forward is going to be an apologetic or a defense of the faith or a defense of the Bible that does not pit God over here and scripture over here, but it actually brings together the trustworthiness of the nature of God and the trustworthiness of the word of God. Because the truth is this, your Bible, the reason it is trustworthy, the reason we can go to it, the reason it has the words for life, the reason it is reliable is because the Bible is God's book. You see, I think some of us try to worry about like making the Bible quote stand on its own. But you know what, I found great peace in the Bible not standing alone, but standing on the nature and character and reality of the triune God. The word of God is not to be separated from the personhood of God. The word of God is not to be placed over here and just treated like a magical book. It's to be treated as what it is, the very word of God. And to communicate that today might require us to be a little bit more adept to who God is and what God is like. You see, the truth is, the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative because God is trustworthy and authoritative. And in our time of communicating scripture in the 21st century, I would love to see those of us that believe in Jesus fully lean in to the nature and trustworthiness of God in connection to his character. The Bible's authority is an authority that has been given from God himself. That actually the reason that, that our Bibles are trustworthy is because we trust God. 
So I also want you to think about today, I'm gonna give you kind of a couple metaphors to think through. Kind of two tracks would be one metaphor I'd, I'd throw at you. Like, try to think about one track of the word of God and the other track being the, um, the nature and the character of God. God's nature, God's word. Try to think on two tracks together. I think some apologetics just try to prove God without God's word or try to prove God's word without God. And I'd like us to think about the two, kind of running on two tracks today. Second metaphor I'd give you if you're a musician, this might wake you up a little bit, like harmony. Like these are two different notes that when put together kind of create music, you know? When one note is played, the nature of God, the other note, the word of God, you can hear it more clearly, right? Those notes do not, are, they're not dissonant with each other. The word of God is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. So I'm gonna give you a simple formula because, you know, Y'all are good, many of you great Christians who have been growing up in the church, maybe following Jesus for a long time. I wanna give you like a Trinitarian response to those who doubt the Bible's authority and trustworthiness so you can leave today and be encouraged by remembering Father, Son, Spirit. Can you say that with me? Father, Son, Spirit, right? The Trinity, God, one God, three distinct persons. I think we can kind of see the nature of God and the word of God as connected together. The first is this. I want us to remember that this book, the Bible, is authored by the Father. This means that the transcendent divine creator of all things has decided to speak by way of human authors whom he has sovereignly selected and supernaturally helped. I'm gonna say that again. This means that there's a transcendent divine creator of all things, the one we were singing about in that last song, has decided to speak by way of human authors whom he has sovereignly selected and supernaturally helped. Distilling that down, the reason we have a Bible is because we have a God who speaks. Let me say that again. The reason we have a Bible is because we have a God who speaks. Before there was a written word, there was a spoken word of God at creation, Genesis 1 verse three, and God said, at creation, let there be light, and there was light. God is a speaking God. Just, you know, one chapter later, he tells the human being, you know, name the animals, or here is your helper, Eve. And then the very next chapter, the, uh, in chapter three, Genesis chapter three, humanity falls, and God comes to them in the garden of the cool of the day, and he says to Adam, where are you? He speaks, he speaks. When Cain sins in Genesis chapter four, he comes and speaks to Cain and says, where is your brother? We have a God who speaks. And so for those of you struggling with the Bible or when we are communicating about the Bible's importance, the first thing we have to remember is that we have a God who speaks. And if we believe that God exists, thinking about Dr. Gavin Ortland's talk week one, I went back and listened to both talks from the last two weeks. Y'all are blessed, by the way. Wow, oh my goodness. Gavin's talk about the reality of God, right? The, the existence of God through beauty and transcendence, okay? If God is real, then we take as Christians that God to be the one who spoke creation into being, and because we have a God who speaks, it makes sense that he would write a book that he would supernaturally help human authors and carry them along by his Holy Spirit, we'll get there in a second, to bring the word of God. Look at actually what the word of God says about the word of God, right? Psalm 19 this is a great psalm. The law of the Lord, the written word of God is perfect, 
The testimony or teachings of the Lord is sure. The commandment of the Lord is pure. That's just a small selection. Perfect, sure, pure. It's talking about the law, the written word, right? Aren't those all adjectives that you would use about God himself? God is perfect, right? Well, why is his word perfect? Why is his law perfect? Because it's his. To lean our apologetic of the Bible on the character of God is the surest place to put it. To say that, man, we have a God who speaks and this Bible is a result of a speaking God. It is the result of a language that we would reserve this language, if you look at this, perfect, we would reserve that language only for one other thing, God himself. And so our trust of scripture comes from our deep trust of who God is. But I think the best place maybe to start, I'm just going in the sequential order of church history, Father, Son, Spirit. But I think if you're communicating this or you're thinking about this, the best place to start is right here, trusted by Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful Dr. Craig Hazen came last week to you guys and talked about the historical you know, veracity of the claims of Jesus Christ and his existence and death and resurrection. Because I think if you can almost take those first two weeks of, your, of the talks that you heard and talk with people about the existence of God and the historical reality of Jesus, the best place, in, in my opinion, in the 21st century to introduce someone to scripture is to tell them this, scripture was trusted by Jesus Christ. Scripture was trusted by Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? A real historical person who made remarkable divine claims about himself and has been and is currently being worshiped by billions of people across two millennia, this Jesus that I'm describing, he held the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, in such high regard that he used it to guide his entire life and ministry as the promised Messiah. If you're talking with someone about scripture, almost like a good portal in is to look at the person of Jesus and go, that Jesus who really existed, he held the Bible in high esteem. Let me show you. Jesus Christ's trust of just the Hebrew Bible, right? Which was the Bible he was, um, he had. Jesus trusted the creation account of Genesis and its implications for gender and sexuality. That's Matthew chapter 19, verses one through nine. Jesus did not dismiss Genesis or think it was a myth or think it was a parable or anything like that. He saw the created order of God as being important and having explicit and important implications. This seems important for us when we're talking about the trust of the scriptures. Jesus also saw the historical theological accounts of Israel as both true and essential for human life, and I would also add, uh, along with all of the laws, you know, along, along with the laws. Um, he saw the historical theological, so he didn't see Israel as like, um, again, a myth or like, oh, some of that happened or some of that didn't happen. Actually, there's many places where Jesus describes his deep understanding and trust of the historical theological accounts of the people of Israel. He was also guided by the wisdom literature to live faithfully and obedient as his life. Um, he describes this in several accounts, even when he's young in Luke 2.52, one of the references up there, it says that Jesus was growing in wisdom and knowledge in the favor of God and man. Oftentimes we think Jesus was born and then he turned 30. 
Yeah, he didn't. Uh, didn't pull that miracle. Uh, he grew up. And what did he grow up around? He was in rabbinic training school. He was reading the scriptures. He was guiding his life by the books of Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, the book of Job. He probably had all of it memorized. He committed his life to scripture. He trusted it with great authority. And so if Jesus is true, Dr. Hazen's talk last week, and we talk about the Bible this week, we go, that person, Jesus, held scripture with high regard. Finally, he used the prophets to inform and support the entirety of his messianic vocation. This is, I, I ran out of room for how many scriptures I could have quoted for this one, right? Jesus' understanding of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel was so, um, his, his trust of it was so deep that he almost seemingly was reading these books as a guide for his vocation as, a, as the Messiah. He knew what was happening to him, both because he was God in the flesh, but also because he trusted the scriptures. What we know about Jesus Christ and his understanding of the word of God, it is both historically accurate and it is existentially satisfying. It satisfies our lives as Christians and as potential Christians to understand the one we are following, the one the book is all about, really trusted the book. He really, really trusted the book. The short answer for me when someone says, Chris, why do you trust the Bible? My short answer is this. I trust the Bible because I am a follower of Jesus and Jesus trusted the Bible and told me to. A simple portal in. Again, we can get to the, the Father and the Spirit here in a second, but a portal in is through the divine Son of God to go, this is how and why we should trust Scripture. Look at this quote from Dr. Tim Keller. He says this, if Jesus is the Son of God, then we have to take his teaching seriously, right? Okay, if he is who he says he was, Dr. Hazen's talk last week, we've gotta take his teaching seriously, including his confidence in the authority of the whole Bible. If he is not who he says he is, why should we care what the Bible says about anything else? He puts it very plainly, right? Again, we are leaning our trust of scripture on the nature and character of God, that the, the word of God is trustworthy and true because God is trustworthy and true. And as we're communicating this to people and as we ourselves are believing this, man, it helps us understand, you know, we, I think the temptation could be to try to get a ton of people who just believe in a real God, like theism, and we don't really incorporate the word of God, or it could be that we just try to prove that the Bible's true, but we never really lead people to the reality of the goodness of God, that God is good. And that's why maybe we have people, you know, who follow the Bible and believe the Bible, but they have no real relationship with God, or people that are spiritual, but they have no understanding of the scriptures. Again, to think on two tracks, to think in the harmony of the word of God and the nature of God working together could be a good answer. Let me include a little bit more about Jesus because I think the historical veracity of Jesus and his scriptures are really, really important for us to consider. The first is that historians actually agree that Jesus existed. I'm gonna blow through this because y'all heard a great talk last week and if you missed it, go back. But I just love this quote from Peter Williams. This is a fantastic little, little book if you want a good little book on the uh, trustworthiness of the gospels. Peter Williams says, were it not for the amazing nature of the claims made about Jesus, few would have any problem believing biographical details uh, recorded so close to the alleged events. In other words, 
we have so much good data on the person of Jesus that like at some level, we, uh, we, the only reason we struggle is because we, there are such remarkable claims made about him. But we have great, great data. And again, I don't wanna spend too much time on this. What I really wanna talk about is how the New Testament and extra biblical sources are harmonious in what was said about Jesus. This is C.S. Lewis. Remember, before he became, uh, you know, the Christian poster child that he is today, he was simply an English uh, literature scholar, a medieval English literature scholar. And when he first encountered the New Testament documents, and particularly the Gospels, this is what he said. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. He's a scholar. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, this is what actually happened, or else some unknown ancient writer suddenly anticipated the whole technique of the modern novelistic realistic narrative. (laughs) Here's my point. Be careful in people who are like struggling with the Bible to just provide the history. Remember the history is in the Bible. Okay, let me say that again. Be careful of like, you know, there's, I'm gonna show you some other stuff here. There's like Josephus and there's really good history that's extra biblical, but the New Testament and that extra biblical stuff, they're actually harmonious in what was said about Jesus. And it's important for us to look at our, our, our New Testament especially and look at the gospel narratives and go, we actually have the history in it. Like when I'm talking with young people about their difficulties with scripture or someone who's struggling with kind of trusting the Bible and they go, well, Chris, what do we know about Jesus outside of the Bible? And I'm like, happy to share that with you. However, let's also talk about what's in the Bible is historical. And Lewis just points out a good, uh, has a good point here because a lot of people will say, well, isn't it kind of like historical nonfiction or, or historical fiction? You know, many of you maybe read historical fiction. Well, the problem is that's something that's just been developed in the last 200 years. And so for books that were written many, many years ago, you know, 1,000 and eight, you know, 1,800 years ago or, you know, 1,950 years ago, 2,000 years ago, depending on the dates of these New Testament documents, Lewis is saying this. Either in your Bible, there's actual history that we can trust or someone anticipated a whole technique that was to come in 2,000 years. What's more, you know, what, 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 what's more believable at this point, right? What's more believable is that these writers did what Luke said he did at the very beginning. He says, I've looked and talked with people and I am telling you just what happened around Nazareth with this man, Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the trustworthiness of scripture, it's important to look at the New Testament and say, this is historical documentation. It has a theological agenda, it certainly does, but the other documents have their own agendas. Here's some uh, other histories, extra biblical sources that are harmonious with the New Testament. Cornelius Tacitus, it was in in 56 AD, he reported that Jesus was crucified under the reign of Tiberius and Pontius Pilate, all gospels use that as a, as, as a part of their history. So it's not incongruent with the rest of history. Pliny the Younger reported the first Christians were worshiping Jesus as God, Christus as God, risen from the grave. Um, there's actually a really cool letter that um, Pliny was writing back to uh, the people in, uh, that were above him 
there were there was like uh, the meat sales in this particular region Pliny was visiting had plummeted because the sacrificial systems of that day many people were converting to Christianity and many meat sellers were like we don't have the same business we used to have because there was already you know a, a lamb they're saying a lamb has already been slain we don't have to keep sacrificing to the gods and so the local economy was changing because the worship practices were changing isn't that cool like the early Christians were starting to change the local economy and Pliny the younger is a really important historical source to go yeah these Christians they were gathering in places and they were worshiping Jesus as the risen Christ Josephus is a common uh, is a commonly held uh, you know historian that's really important corroborated Jesus claims about like his influence in ministry which you know if you read the gospel of Mark or Matthew growing crowds even though Jesus is telling people to not speak people are speaking and sharing and all of this stuff this makes us all the more confident that our New Testament was trusted by Jesus Christ because Jesus was a real person who lived the life he said he lived finally the real Jesus he trusted the Old Testament he really did trust the Old Testament look at this passage from Luke this is the story where Jesus is telling about a rich man and a man named uh, Lazarus a poor man and Lazarus the poor man goes up by Abraham's side and the rich man goes into Hades and is suffering and he says go tell my friends that you know that Jesus is who he says he is that this is true and in Jesus's telling of this story, he says that Abraham says, they don't need to have somebody come back from the dead to tell them who, uh, you know, the reality of Jesus. They have Moses. They have their Old Testament and the prophets. That's a catch-all way of talking about Genesis all the way through the end of your Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they'll repent, right? And this is Jesus' telling of the story, and he says, Abraham replies to this person and says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So in Jesus' mind, his own resurrection and the proof of his divine nature and character could have been foreseen if someone was paying attention to their Old Testament. So again, we're putting our trust of scripture on the nature and character of God and how trusted it was with Jesus. Here's a shorter scripture from John chapter five. Jesus is talking to his critics and he says, look, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? He was writing about me. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, all the prophets, all the Psalms. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus equating his own spoken word with the word of God in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ trusted this book. The interrelationship between the accuracy of Jesus' existence and the claims he made about himself and the Bible would lead us to have incredible trust in the Old and New Testament. Finally, the scriptures were guided and are currently being guided by the Holy Spirit. This is another way to build our trust in scripture. God's empowering presence, his Holy Spirit, is deeply involved in the world. This is something we also need to include in our apologetic about scripture. It's not that God is up here in heaven and he dropped a book on us and is like, figure it out. Actually, the Holy Spirit guided, God's empowering presence is deeply involved in the world, particularly his Holy Spirit is involved through the authoring and the organization of the Bible. 
as well, and this is important, as his church's interpretation of it. You know, the Holy Spirit, I pray, is active in your life as you read God's word in community, as you listen to the preaching of God's word. God's word was guided in its original authoring, organization, canonization, and now interpretation. The Spirit of God was not something that just wrote a book and again dropped it on you and was like, figure it out. He actually wrote this through the power of his empowering presence in human beings and has never left the Word. The Word is still guided by the Holy Spirit. You'll see this in the early writings of the apostles in your New Testament. This is what they believed. This is Peter writing to churches all over the diaspora in the ancient world. Look at what he says. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the coming, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's connecting my point three, guided by the Holy Spirit, with the fact that it was trusted by Jesus. But look at this. We, the apostles, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven and we have this, the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, I love this, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice the passivity in that text. These men were just carried along. I love that. What do you carry? A baby? A a, a dog? You know, you carry something that is, that cannot carry itself, that can't walk. And so the original writers of the scriptures were like, our whole thing has been leaning on the guidance of God's empowering presence. We are not out here just writing our screeds and manifestos about the world and existence. We're here to tell you about a person who lived and died and rose from the dead. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty and the Holy Spirit carried us along. He picked us up and brought us to where the Holy Spirit wanted us to go, not our own agenda. He even says in two chapters later, he equates Paul's writing with other scripture, which was another apostle that, if you know Peter and Paul's relationship, wasn't always rosy. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, he says just as our beloved Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Notice it's wisdom given to Paul. It's not Paul's own wise thoughts. He received it from somewhere. As he does with all the letters he spoke in uh, them of these matters. Here's one of my Bible nerds' favorite verses. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, right? Amen. Have you read Romans? Uh, Which the ignorant and the unstable twist for their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Scholars have always picked up on this to say, don't miss what Peter's doing. He's equating Paul's own words and letters with the Torah, with the Old Testament, with Isaiah. He's saying they're doing the same thing they did to other scriptures. The writers of the New Testament and the apostles saw themselves as continuing a tradition that had been carried from the Holy Spirit all the way from Genesis and was going through to Revelation. They were not seeing their work as just writings. They were seeing their work as participation in what God was doing in the world. And so when we communicate the trustworthiness of scripture, we cannot leave out what the authors thought they were doing. They didn't just think they were out here writing. They were out here building and growing God's church 
and establishing it through the word. Really exciting, really, really cool the way that we can see this. We see that God's word, you know, Hebrews 4.12, there's that famous verse that says, the word of God is living and active. Let's not have an apologetic that treats the word as dead. Let's have an apologetic and a defense of the word that says this thing is still going. God's spirit is still involved in illuminating the meaning. Christopher Beely is a professor out at Duke and he says this, theologians of the second and third century spent great energy defending the truth and inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures and their unity with the New Testament. Both testaments contain literal and spiritual meaning. Uh, Beely is a historical theologian on the early, early church. And what he's saying is really important because the early movement of the church after the books were written, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and the letters of Paul and Peter, the church saw their role as properly interpreting and seeing the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the early Christians were working in their interpretation, they saw it as paired with, now listen to me carefully, as paired with the very writing of scripture. Look at what Augustine says in an exposition of Psalm 95. He says, we as pastors speak because the Lord has graciously imparted to us the same spirit who inspired those who spoke before us. Augustine's probably speaking about this in like 375 or 360 AD. And whatever we say now, we say, I love this, under the influence of the same spirit who prompted our predecessors. We cannot omit to say it. Like he's like, we can't help but speak the word. Therefore, it must be said since it has always been said through the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. And so our trust of scripture is going to the spirit speaking through the original authors and also helping us as we speak the word of God. God is truly active in his own word. If this is truly the word of God, if we look at a Bible and we say this is truly God's word, then we have to see that it was authored, trusted, and guided by him. This, if we believe this, if we believe that it was authored by the Father, trusted by God the Son, empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit, we would trust this book. And it would fundamentally change our posture towards the Bible. Tim Mackey, who's of Bible Project fame, if you're fans of the Bible Project, I'm sure you are. Incredible Bible teacher, I was fortunate to sit under his teaching at Western Seminary. He used to say this, when I encounter the Bible and my trouble with it, I, he says, as I've studied it more, I've fundamentally made a shift. I used to look at troubling texts of the Bible and think, something's wrong with the Bible. Or I used to look at the history and go, something's wrong with the history of the Bible. But he says, the more I study it, the more I look at those troubling aspects of the Bible and the posture shift, there's not something wrong with the word. There's probably something wrong with me. There's probably something wrong with me. I haven't studied enough. I haven't learned, I haven't submitted myself to the text. Changing our presupposition is the true apologetic for scripture because it would include the profound intimate relationship between the author of the text and the text itself. That we would no longer separate God's word from God's nature and character because of this, friends. You know this to be true. If you follow Jesus, if you love the Bible, the reason you love the Bible is because you open it and it doesn't just talk about God, but suddenly while you're reading its pages, God himself meets you because God's spirit is involved and alive and real and the word is living and active, it's not dead. 
And our apologetic and defense of the Bible should always include the intimate relationship that people can form between God's word and God himself. I love the way Catherine Sonderager puts it. She says this, Christians do not read the Bible in order to learn about God, though of course it can be done in this fashion, right? Happens all the time. Rather though, we read Holy Scripture in order to enter into the divine presence, to walk before him, to draw near. This is the dearness of Scripture. It's intimate charisma, it's lovely familiarity. Christians do not understand or embrace or rest at ease with every last book verse of Scripture, right? The Tim Mackey thing. I look at some verses, they confuse me. But look at this, it remains a strange book. Sometimes an alien and terrible one, but to hear this history and the song and the parable and law book of Holy Scripture is to come into the penumbra of a welcome light, to touch a lovely garment, well-worn, and to love a token, a remnant and sign of the one who irresistibly calls us to himself. May we trust the scriptures as we trust the nature and character of God. They were never meant to be separated. Let's bring together the triune aspects of God into the lovely and beautiful pages of our scriptures. Let me pray for you now. Father, I thank you for SVCC and God, I thank you that you would give us the opportunity to know you through your word. I pray, God, as we grow in our trust of you, we would grow in our trust of scripture, and as we grow in our trust of scripture, we would grow in our trust of you. We would see them as two tracks, God. We would see them as two notes that are harmonious with one another. So, Spirit of God, we trust that you are living and active and working and moving in this space, and we ask you, God, to fill us with the encouragement that your word is true and trustworthy. We need you, God. We trust you, and we lean on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.